in any event, uh, it's Monday night. It's January the 11th, and uh, Dr. Mike Walden, one of our longest-running guests, I think he probably is the longest-running guest, is is uh, is our guest tonight. Uh, people are always interested in the weather and health and money, and he's the one who deals well not in money specifically, but in the, the state and the goings on in the economy. And he is uh, a uh, professor at NC State University, where he's been since Mike is in 1977. 78, Tom. Good evening. 1978. Uh, I'm getting closer. I got it. I'm just one year off now. Yeah, uh, you are getting closer each time. Hope you're doing well this evening. So far, I'm doing well, and I hope you're doing well. I hope your New Year's gotten off to a good start. Uh, I and, can't uh, complain uh, with everything going on. Can't complain. Uh, being able to work remotely is a blessing, and <clears throat> we're trying. We're trying to stay safe, uh, health-wise. So, uh, yeah, a lot. A lot of other people have, having many more challenges than I am. When, may I ask you a question? There's nothing wrong with this. Uh, uh, when, are, when are the students? Next, next if, week. If I ask you when this semester began, when next, would you next say? Week. Next week. Next week. Okay. All right. Somebody asked me that today. They said you live in that neighborhood, and I said, yeah, but things are so different now. The way the world is operating. You drive around much really smaller or, or walk around from the streets, you'll see a lot of students are already here. Yeah, you never really know what's you know. And of course, the challenge will be to keep, um, and I'll be very blunt here to have them behave. Uh, the university is going to require them to be tested uh, before they enter campus. So that's different than what they did in the previous semester. But if you get if you accomplish that, you'll be requested to come and get the general populace to behave. Then, so. <laughs> I well, it really, I think, I think, I think, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know the details of this, but the information I've gotten is that you, if you're a student and you're coming on campus, you will not be allowed on campus until you are, you so, show proof you've been tested, a negative test within three days. And if, if a person has not been tested, the university has facilities to do that. So that's, that's different than what was done in the uh, fall semester. Okay. It's, uh, it seems like we've talked a lot lately, but of course, in the month of December, you made two appearances, and you were just here two weeks ago, uh -huh. giving your year-end uh, and forecast appraisal of the economy. But things have begun already for the year 2021, and I think uh, I heard that an employment uh, report came out uh, at the end of last week. There, there are plenty of things to talk about, and I suppose the best place to start would be, as usual, to talk about the state of the economy right now as you see it. Well, we did have an unemployment or, uh, job report for the month of December that came out last Friday. This is at the national level. We won't get the North Carolina numbers for a couple of weeks. But um, it was a down report. In fact, I think this is the first month since April uh, where we had not seen jobs at the national level go up. Indeed, in December, they went down by 140,000. Now, these are what, what are called seasonally adjusted numbers. Because someone might say, well, don't we get a big surge in hiring because of the Christmas holidays? And, and certainly that usually does take place, but this adjusts for that. And um, so, so adjusting for that typical holiday increase, um, job numbers went down. And it was pretty much all concentrated, Tom, in one sector, uh, hospitality and leisure, which is going to be your restaurants, your, your travel jobs, uh, hotels, those three components. 
I think um, over over half a million jobs were lost there. And this is because, as you know, in some states, not North Carolina, although we do have a curfew, I think, that affects um, restaurants, what is it, 10 o'clock. Um, but in some states, like particularly California, uh, they've been they've imposed, I believe, some additional, some new or reinstated, I should say, closures on restaurants. And I'm not sure what New York, New York City, I think, has some reinstated some closures. So I think a lot of this is being driven at the national level by some of those larger states who have, who have retreated with opening and gone back the other direction because of the outbreak of the, of the, of the uh, virus resurgence of the virus. So I, I think we're probably, we may see that carry through through January. And, and what I tell people now, Tom, is it's really a race between the uh, increasing cases of the virus and increasing, hopefully increasing inoculations of people, but with the vaccine. And so I think that's why it's crucial that we we, we get those uh, vaccines out there and get more, more and more people inoculated because we, we are seeing the, the reemergence of the virus. And I guess there's a debate among medical experts as to whether it's the same virus, the same uh, mutation of the virus, but just because of uh, people being enclosed more in, in, in winter, maybe some people letting their guard down during the holidays, that's the cause of the resurgence. Or uh, I guess there is a question, at least I've read in some news article outlets, that there may some, some medical people think it might be a new strain, a new mutation of the virus, which is causing this resurgence. But whatever, uh, it's still here, and it's still a problem. Uh, but hopefully we get people vaccinated, and once we get that crucial, what is it? I guess there's different opinion here, whether you need 65% or more to get that so-called herd, herd uh, immunity. Um, we're going to be fighting this. But my guess would be that we will see the inoculations be very pervasive by the time we get into the spring, uh, March, April, and maybe by early summer we'll get that, that herd immunity, and that'll be the, that'll be the road to recovery. And, and most economists for this year, for 2021, are, are fairly optimistic. Uh, in fact, most economists are thinking that in terms of the broadest measure of the economy that measures economic activity of all sectors of the economy, that we may very well get back to pre-pandemic levels that we had in, in uh, February of 2020. We may get back to that level of economic activity by the end of this year. But uh, most economists are also in agreement that the labor market is not going to be fully back. Uh, that it'll be maybe another year, maybe two years before we get the number of jobs and, and particularly the unemployment rate down to where it was. And the thing that I'd like to add to that statement is that probably the mix of jobs that we have in the post-pandemic world will be different than the, the kinds of jobs we had in the pre-pandemic world. We're going to go through a lot of, I think, job churning, job changes, and uh, I think there will be pressure to uh, make sure that we have training programs, apprentices programs, apprenticeship programs, et cetera, to, to be able to retrain people who find that their jobs are gone permanently. They, they, what they were doing before the pandemic is no longer there, and they have to find something else to do, and we need to be ready to have some programs to help them. It does seem that uh, one of the things I've been thinking about throwing in the whole time you were talking was uh, 
a reminder that whatever happens with the vaccines, we're probably going to be wearing masks and standing at a distance is the, the requirements, you know, for most of this year because the vaccine is not going to be taken by everybody and it's not going to immediately cause the pandemic to go away. It's going to be something. That's right. Yeah, I think I think the masking is, is something that's going to be here for this year and right distancing and sanitation, et cetera. Yeah, those habits that we've now gotten used to, or at least I've gotten used to, will probably be maintained uh, throughout most of this year. I agree. Patience and flexibility. Now, uh, this is where I do my uh, uh, tell the truth about the the, the program here, uh, and that is to say, Doctor Walden gives me a cheat sheet, uh, and that is we we have a little conference before we come on the air, and he he and I talk about it. he does most of the talking because he's the brains of this outfit uh, about what the, the the appropriate things to to cover on tonight's program are and. And I kibitz as I will, and maybe think of something reasonably intelligent to ask. But he gives me what he thinks we ought to talk about, and of course that's why he's here. He's the one who knows. And one of the questions, and it's connected, I think, a little bit to the question that we just had in a more specific and more uh, directed uh, way. Uh, in the, the next question, which this is what is called a radio tease, because we're going to take a break and, and get to this after the tease, after the break is, is it hard for someone who's out looking for a job, since we were talking about job markets, to find a job? And we'll find out the answer to that from Dr. Walden right after this. Monday night, January 11th. It's hard to believe that we're already that far into the new year, but indeed we are. And uh, we're having our first visit from our resident, that's in quotes now, economist, Professor Mike Walden. And Dr. Walden, we posed the question, uh, before we went away, about is it hard to find a job now? Yes, we we uh, you you um, raised the question, which is a very good question about uh, people who are looking for can they find work? And another way of saying the same thing is, if there are businesses that need workers, can they find workers? And the answer to both questions is not necessarily. In fact, this is based on some new analysis that was reported in the in the New York Times that. Uh, focused on manufacturing, and there were reports from around the country that a lot of manufacturers, and manufacturing is one of those sectors that has come back rather strongly, a lot of manufacturing companies are not being able to find workers. And so the question is, what's going on? And I think uh, there are two things going on here. One is that um, that shifting of jobs that I mentioned before in our first segment is, going, is, is something that's happening, and that is that if you look at where a lot of jobs have been created, and if you're someone looking for work, uh, yes, manufacturing's been adding jobs, but the real, the, the real area that's been adding a lot of jobs has been in e-commerce. I think there have been a lot of stories, for example, about how many jobs Amazon has added, hundreds of thousands. And so one, one reason why a company like a manufacturer uh, who's looking for workers can't find them is those workers may have already taken jobs at uh, a competing sector like e-commerce. And then a second reason is that although uh, we, we hopefully have improved in terms of dealing with the virus, we have had this resurgence. And uh, some people may just simply be reluctant to go out and, and look for work. They, they just they, they want to hunker down their home. They want to avoid person-to-person contact, et cetera. Uh, depending on where you live in the country, some schools may or may 
cannot be open. So if they have children, they may have to take care of those children at home as they engage in remote learning. So this is a this is a very very odd kind of economic recovery in, in so many ways, and there's not been exactly a match between people looking for work and businesses that are looking for workers. We're not seeing that kind of typical match that we would have in a in a uh, earlier recovery from a recession. So once again, this this pandemic induced recession is is different than any we've ever had. Dr. Mike Walden uh, with the uh a look uh, at uh, the job market uh, from both ends. I believe you said earlier, and, and I was, was just trying to think, and you made reference to it in, in what you were just saying, but the area that the jobs have disappeared is, is like restaurants and leisure. Uh, and yeah, there's been like a big, I mean, they, they actually had a good cut, that, that sector, which is uh, called leisure hospitality, and the main component yeah. that would be restaurants and, and bars too, restaurants and hotels and, and uh, um, uh, travel. Um, that sector lost around half of its jobs in April, which was the, the devastating month for this pandemic recession. But they've, they've actually come back, and before December, they were down about 20, 20 to 25 percent. But they, they took a setback in December because of the resurgence of the virus. And that is the sector that has been most impacted, because if you think about it, restaurants uh, especially, but also hotels or travel, you have a lot of face-to-face contact there. In the case of travel, you may you may be in an airplane where you're face-to-face contact with other travelers. And although the airlines, I think, have done a fairly good job of trying to make that safe, a lot of people simply don't want to do that. Uh, restaurants, again, uh, the rest, a lot of restaurants have been able to set up shields and, and uh, reduce the number of occupants, et cetera. But once again, um, People may not want to do that, and then if you haven't, if you're in a state where there's been orders to, for the restaurants to shut down in December because of the resurgence, obviously then the restaurants can't even do, take do those measures because they're not open. So that's been the sector that's been very, very vulnerable to to the uh, pandemic recession. Switching our directions a little bit, and I've been eager to hear your explanation of this since you told me about it before the, we went on the air tonight, as I was describing a little bit earlier, and that is something called build-to-rent homes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, this is um, something that people are looking to uh, move and maybe have a single-family home. Maybe they're in an apartment, and they say, gosh, I, uh, I really would like some elbow room. I'd, I'd like a yard, maybe not be as close to my neighbor's. Um, yeah, the, the construction market has been doing very, very well, home construction market. Um, but, uh, and you and I were talking about this before we came on the air, housing prices have been going up a lot. Um, uh, people who have been at home uh, and they maybe are foreseeing they're going to work at home if they, if they haven't lost their job and they have the funds, they may have said, gee, if we're going to work at home, we need more space, so let's buy a different house. Uh, people are adding on to their houses. Um, there's been a lot of, in, in economics lingo, more demand for homes than there is supply, so those prices have been going up. Yet there are people who would like to, uh, if they can't own a home, they'd still like to be in a, in a single-family situation. And as we'd expect in a, in a market-driven economy, if there's a demand for something that is if enough people want something, the market will supply that. There'll be people out there who will supply that. So one of the things that we're seeing a big change of, we being economists, is that uh, the the uh, if, if you look at home construction, construction of new homes, all of these new homes that are being built around the country are not necessarily
necessarily for buyers. A fair number of them are, are being rented out. In fact, I think uh, I'm looking at some notes here, uh, but the number of single-family rental homes has risen 40 percent since 2007. And what that market is serving is, again, people, household families who want to be in a single-family structure. They want, again, as I said earlier, elbow room. They want some space. They want a yard. But they may not have a way, they may not have income that even with low interest rates that will allow them to take out a mortgage and buy that house. Well, again, here's where the market is, is coming to the rescue. These rent-to-own homes are homes that are built specifically for those folks. They move into the house, but they don't own the house. They still continue to rent. If, for example, if they come from an apartment they rent, they still continue to rent, but they're but they have the benefit of living in a single-family home. So that's something that's uh, becoming more and more common. And so I would tell any of our listeners who are in that situation where they may be in an apartment, maybe the lease is coming up, and they say, "Gosh, we'd really like to, to be in a house, single-family home. We just can't. We we, we just can't afford it." Uh, look for, talk to people, try to find out are there homes in the areas they can rent because that is becoming more common. Well, the American industry that deals with financing things and, and I think kinds of things you're talking about is endless, endlessly creative. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, we have about a minute now before we need to take a break for the news, has the rent-to-own aspect entered this thing that you're talking about? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, that's, that, yeah, I would certainly classify that as a, as innovative. And this is all this has been around for a long time. I mean, there have been always been homes that you can you can rent rather than own. But again, it's been, it's been increasing over the last even before the pandemic. Again, up forty percent since two thousand seven. Well, I know my uh, my nephew, my my sister was telling me her son is in construction and he stays busy. So obviously, he's, they've got more work than mm-hmm, they can do. Mm-hmm. Dr. Mike Walden is our guest tonight. He's our resident economist. He's actually a professor at NC State University, and he's been visiting with us for the last 30 years. We'll be back to talk with him some more after we check the news on WPTF. FM 680 and FM 98.5. This is the point in most of our programs when we do a little promoing, and we will, in fact, do some here tomorrow night. That is Tuesday night. Our guest will be John Naron and Andrew Bullock of Smith Denham at our law firm, and they are going to be talking about uh, making a will and the necessity of making a will or the hopeful, hopeful, hopeful necessity of making a will. This is a tradition that we we do every January to remind people of the importance of having a will since uh, only about 50%, actually a little bit less, of Americans actually have a will. And when you do not have one, you're giving over to the political entity where you live, the state, uh, a control of uh, some of the decisions that you can make about your properties and uh, and other things. So uh, tune in tomorrow night. John and, uh, and Andrew will be with us for that. And uh, on a Wednesday night, Nick Petro of the National Weather Service, who comes by usually about once a month, maybe sometimes a little longer, uh, but uh, it's uh, in the, the midwinter now, and we'll uh, get a, a look at what has been going on and what might possibly be around the corner and talk about the weather with Nick Petro on Wednesday night. Tonight, Dr. Mike Walden, Professor of Economics at NC State, is our guest. Dr. Walden, are you there? I am, Tom, yes. I, I was working so hard 
to copy down what you told me tonight, and I'm missing one word in our next topic here. Uh, I hate for everybody to see behind the screen, but then again, that's the way it works. Uh, best measure of public... Cost of public debt. Cost of public debt, okay. Well, right. translated, uh, the federal government, even before the pandemic, had borrowed uh, over time a lot of money, about 20, $22, 23 $24 trillion. That's so-called national debt. We've added about $4 trillion to that uh, during the pandemic through the various uh, aid packages. So we may be looking at $27, $28 trillion in total. And I get a lot of, when I give talks, it's one of the most common questions I get is, gosh, Dr. Walden, we've got all this now new debt. It's even bigger than ever. Um, isn't that going to sink us? Aren't we going to fall off the, the economic edge? So this really comes down to how, how should we look at the national debt? What's the best measure? I mean, obviously, in anyone's eyes, $28 trillion is just incomprehensible. It's a tremendous amount of money. Now, one way that uh, that amount has been looked at conventionally is to look at in combination to or in contrast to the size of our economy. That's called the debt-to-GDP ratio, GDP being gross domestic product, uh, the measure of the broad economy. And uh, 10 years ago, that number was 60%. That is, the national debt as a percent of the economy was 60%. Today, it's now over 100%. I think it's around 107%. So that, that gets people worried. However, um, the, the key here, and this is, this is I would say this is probably the, the opinion of the majority of economists, the key here is not the amount of debt, but whether you can carry it. And, and to give a personal example, if you're borrowing money for a home, let's say you borrow $200,000 by a house, 200000 sounds like a big amount, big, big number, but really what matters to your budget is what's the financing cost on that, how much, and how, how is that compared to your, to your income. Well, you can make the same case here, that what really matters to the national debt is the, the cost of carrying that debt, that is the annual interest, or uh, annual, annual debt payments, which would be part principal, part interest. And how does that compare to the size of the economy? Well, here, when you go that route, you get a totally different perspective. And this is all courtesy of the fact that interest rates uh, are, are very, very low. In fact, interest rates, charge to the federal government for borrowing money is uh, well below 1% interest rate. So when you do that, you find that um, the number, that percentage of payments to GDP is, uh, is not very high. It's not historically high. It's gone up a little bit in the last several years, but it's, it's not out of bounds with which we're, where we've been in the past. So if, you, if you're looking for uh, consoling that, yes, the federal government can carry this debt, yes, the federal government can make the payments. Whomever owns the debt, could be you, me, through our investments or foreign countries, doesn't matter, um, then that's, that's the way you would get there, that if you, you want to look at the cost to the economy in, in terms of the, the broad economy, which you view that as the income of the country, the uh, percent of income of the country that is paid each year to carrying that, that national debt. And right now, it's it's, close, it's around, it's a little north of 1%, but under 2%. So in, in borrowing the money and spending it, it's, there's a little bit of self-preservation. It's kind of like whether you've, uh, you've uh, you know, with that $200,000 mortgage you mentioned, you're all right as long as you keep, as you keep um, your job. I, have, I can't hear you. 
Uh, can you hear me now? No, I cannot. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, John, are we missing something on, on a pot somewhere or something? Dr. Walden? Now I can, yeah. Okay. I, I have no idea. John is the electronic genius here. In <laughs> I was I was saying that, that uh, as long as you can, the guy with the $200,000 mortgage, as long as he keeps his job and yeah. can make the payments, everything's going to be all right. Yeah, and, and, and then, and the, and then the, coil, the, the addition to that would be in order to, to see uh, how burdensome that mortgage is, you look at the mortgage payment as a percent of his or her income. And that's what we're doing with the measure I mentioned. So, um, uh, my my view w is that yes, we uh, this this is rendering no opinion on the on the, the the use of the borrowing. Although I think many people would would say that the four trillion that we borrowed, federal government has borrowed to help out people and business with the pandemic. That's probably money well spent. Could have been spent in other ways. People have their opinions on that, but I think most people would agree that federal government had to jump in to do something because this was this was an emergency, an unexpected emergency to to our health as well as to our economy. To our economy, um, but we can afford we can afford that uh, with current interest rates. Now, if interest rates were skyrocket, uh, you mentioned Tom. I joined the faculty of NC State in 1978. Interest rates were double digit rates then. Right now, they're they're closer to zero, close to zero. So, if interest rates were skyrocket to to double digit, then we'd be in trouble. But I don't know of any economist who, who thinks that's going to happen anytime soon. Well, you know, one of the things when you first started appearing on this program that quite often was the question was about the, the rate of borrowing interest to buy a home or something. Mm -hmm. And I can testify about your 1978 because that's when Mrs. Kearney and I took out our loan to buy our home, and the rate was 11.75 percent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did. I did the same. I think a year later, 1980, when we bought uh, bought a home that, um, uh, yeah, we were in double digit also. Yeah, yeah. Right. And now so it's it, like it, something like I think three percent, three percent change. So, um, and that's a whole other story. Why are interest rates so low? Short answer is because uh, worldwide savings rates are very are very high. There's a lot of money out there that's looking for a home. Uh, to a, uh, an investable home, uh, and we're now in an international money market. So there's a lot of money being saved in the world, and that's that's what's holding interest rates down. That's the short answer that a lot of economists will give. Well, let's change to another subject here quickly before we take another break in the middle of this half hour, and that is the question about broadband yeah. in North Carolina. And you may have to tell us what broadband is. Well, broadband just means uh, reliable high-speed internet, and it's Typically, I think measured by if you can um, download things at 100 megabytes per second and upload them at 5 megabytes per second, you're considered high speed. Um, okay. And I think the pandemic has certainly, again, this has been an issue for a long time, but the pandemic has revealed how important it is to have access to reliable high-speed Internet when you're working from home, educating your children, using the Internet to access your health care provider, et cetera. And I think this is going to be something that is going to continue to some degree, uh, the three aforementioned uh, functions, uh, even after the pandemic. The latest data we have from the federal government, actually the Federal Communications um, uh, Commission, for North Carolina suggests that um, almost everyone in, in urban areas in North Carolina uh, has at least access to high-speed internet doesn't mean, or broadband. doesn't mean they have it. But, but they have access to it. 
whereas in rural areas, uh, 86% of people in rural areas, according to the federal government, have access in North Carolina to broadband. Now, there, there's some questions about those numbers. There's some people who look at how the federal government uh, derives those numbers and question them. So I have seen estimates to suggest that these numbers are, more, are too optimistic. In the case of rural North Carolina, it might be maybe 50% of people have access to, to uh, high-speed Internet or broadband. But I do think we're going to see a greater push to do that. Uh, North Carolina General Assembly has allocated some money. Federal government has actually allocated some money. And I think one of the things to look at the Biden administration when they start uh, producing their legislative package, it's widely thought they may, they may want to do a big infrastructure package, that is roads, bridges, et cetera, which would maybe also include high-speed Internet. It's been estimated that if we were going to do the conventional high-speed Internet, Internet across the country, make sure that every household in the country had access to high-speed internet. It cost about $150 billion, which is relatively small compared to the amount of money we've, we've borrowed in the last, uh, in the last year. Um, I mentioned this before, Tom. There are some people who think that internet provision is going to move away from wires to satellite, and we're not talking about those satellites that are 20,000 miles in the air that some people do get their internet from. These are going to be low-orbiting satellites, maybe five, 600 feet up, 600, five, 600 miles up, and totally different quality of signal, et cetera. So um, the, the um, gentleman who does Tesla, Elon Musk, I think he was, it was said he's now the richest person in the world. He passed Jeff Bezos, is working on this. He's got a company, SpaceX, that shoots up satellites, and now he's also got a company called... Um, uh, space link, I think it is, that would do the, the Internet. So that's something to watch. But I do think we're going to see a bigger push to make sure that everyone has access to high-speed Internet. Sort of like, Tom, you're the historian, 20s and 30s, where there was a big national push to make sure everyone had access to electricity. Uh, uh, indeed, yes. Uh, the kind of thing that... Uh, but I, I'm going to put in, put in a word for... Uh, uh, you, you didn't you did, didn't expect this, but a man named David Weaver, who was an agricultural engineer at your institution, uh, developed the uh, the plan, the national plan for or his plan for North Carolina was was uh, imi Im Im imitated in developing the plan for what became rural electrification uh -huh. for uh -huh. uh, for the country in the United States. He, and he he doesn't get enough credit for it, but. Uh, Anyway, he, I, I think we're, we're probably, and, and again, pandemic like it's done for so many things, it's just put a microscope on a lot of things. I think we're probably to the point in the country now where we consider high speed internet just a necessity. Just got to have it because so much of life now revolves around using, using the and, and the kind of teaching that's having to be done and, yeah. and so on. Just, just, just it almost is going to have to be. Well, we need to stop and take a. Okay. A break here and have a message, and when we come back, we're going to have um, uh, 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 a treatise. Uh, that's really not right. You're going to talk about population stagnation when we come okay. back on WPTF. Uh -huh. Dr. Mike Walden, right after this. Dr. Mike Walden, by the way, appears with us usually uh, once a month, usually about this sort of towards the middle of the month, and... Uh, because of the way the calendars work, if we have him on the 11th next month, uh, if we take a four-week uh, 
uh, hiatus, uh, we'll end up, he'll probably be on about the 8th, and at some point we have to leap ahead a week and get him back into the middle of the month. But he's here with us tonight and, and talking about the state of the economy. And as always, it, it is uh, important news and even more important because of some of the uh, effect uh, the the uh, uh, situation with uh, with the coronavirus has, has produced. In any event, um, Dr. Walden, uh, yes, the question that you have left for us that we need to get to now is population stagnation. Y- yes. Um People, people think about population all the time. We hear numbers about North Carolina growing, Raleigh, where we are growing, et cetera. Uh, obviously, I mean, it goes without saying, population is a very crucial element in the economy. Uh, when we talk about economic growth, a uh, large part of that growth is simply due to us having more people, more workers, producing more, et cetera. So tracking how fast the population is growing is, is something that uh, demographers do, but so, so do economists, and we we just have some uh, fresh numbers. These are estimates now, but they're probably close to the, the final final number on our population growth rate in the country as well as in the states in 2020. And uh, we had a very, very slow increase in our population in 2020, 0.4% increase in our population. I think that's the, the slowest rate of growth, slowest increase in our population percentage-wise percentage-wise, since 1900. So we're not adding people very fast. And, in fact, if you look around the world, um, we're one of the uh, few developed countries that's actually adding population. You look in Europe, a lot of those countries, Italy, for example, I think, I'm not sure if Germany is part of this, uh, they've actually been losing population. China is projected to be losing population in the not-too-distant future. So um, that's simply a very key part of, of a large, uh, largely of our world. Now, <clears throat> North Carolina is different. Uh, in, in 2020, it's estimated that we grew our population by 1%. Again, the national growth rate was 0.4%. Now, uh, people are going to say, well, golly, are we, are we, do we have bigger families in North Carolina? I mean, what's going on? Well, the reason North Carolina's population growth was faster than the nation's is we had a large number of people, and we've had this going on for a number of years, moving here from other states. So it's not all domestically or internally produced through birth. Uh, people moving to a state from another state, uh, they're going to be counted as new people in the state they moved to, and that's the case for North Carolina. And uh, we were one of the faster faster states in that measure that is uh, population growth in 2020 among, among all states. So that, that helps us with our growth rate. It helps us with a lot of things. Now, I should, I should back up and say that uh, I will let the listeners decide whether slow population growth rate is good or, or, or faster population growth rate is, is, is better in terms of just growing the economy. The more people you have, the bigger the economy will get. But there are people who worry about the use of natural resources, the environment, and they, are, they may argue very well that, well, the slower the population increases, maybe we're not going to put as much demand on our environment, on our water system, et cetera, not as much pollution, that that might be better. That's, that's not something that I'm going to solve for people. People can have different, different views on that. But the fact of the matter is, nationally, we are, are moving ahead in, in numbers of people very, very, very slowly. On the other hand, in North Carolina, we're moving ahead faster, but that's all due to the fact that we are a magnet. 
several reasons for people who want to leave their state and to move somewhere else. North Carolina is a, is a big recipient of those folks. I, I will say, Dr. Walton, I looked at the population of Raleigh within the last two or three days, and the and what I've been looking at is estimates because we really get, only get that official counting, you know, on the on the death, on the tens, so to speak, as they would say, because of the census. And right. I guess the, the official figures will be out sometime soon. But the last figures I saw for Raleigh were an estimated 475,000. Mm-hmm. The last time I looked, it was 460,000. Yeah. So people mm-hmm. continue to come. I, and then I, I think guess. the entire county of Wake, which Raleigh is obviously the the center of, I think we're I think we're around a million in, in Wake County. I think it went over a million about three years ago, yeah. as a matter and, of fact, um, if I remember. You've been here longer than I have, Tom. But um, you know, when I came here, uh, Mrs. Walden and I came here in 1978. Um, gosh. Raleigh was probably at least half the half the size or, or less than, than what it is now. Same with Wake County. And, of course, with more population, you're getting more things. And look at all the building announcements we're having, we're having Raleigh, the, the downtown south. I know that's controversial, but I think that's a sign of the, the growing population in this area. Well, we have about 45 seconds, Dr. Walden. And, uh, well, uh, let me let me uh, fill that by uh, by telling people looking ahead. Um, I, I think we're gonna, don't be surprised as, as our listeners if we have uh, several bad numbers about the economy because I think we're in a wall now with the resurgence of the virus. Uh, if we if we get that under control and and if we get uh, more vaccines, more vaccinations deployed, more people being vaccinated. Then that that bodes well for the economy, and and I do think by spring we should be we should be moving ahead uh, on on both cylinders, both job job growth and overall growth. But the job the job growth is going to be a little slower because of this the changing mix of jobs. That's that's uh, I think one of the results of COVID. Uh, the kinds of jobs that are out there are going to be different. And again, just reemphasize, I think that that means we need to be. Well, I hope you will be. I hope you will be here with us to report it. Uh, yes. Thank you for being on with okay, us. Tom. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Good night. Tomorrow night uh, we're going to talk about making a will. <laughs>